Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. I am John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our March-April 2018 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Adults with treatment-resistant depression bear a heavy burden of disease. Although previous studies have characterized this burden from an economic perspective, less is known about its impact on important life circumstances, such as employment status change. In addition, little has been done to characterize the ways in which the burden may vary according to the severity of the illness. In a recent study sponsored by Janssen Scientific Affairs, the authors used administrative data to identify employees and their dependents with treatment-resistant depression. They based this identification on the sequence of treatments observed within two years of starting an antidepressant. Resource use, costs, and employment status change were among the outcomes assessed between three groups, patients with treatment-resistant depression, those with major depressive disorder, or MDD, alone, and those without MDD. The authors found that 16% of patients treated for MDD met the criteria for treatment resistance. Healthcare resource use, work loss, and associated costs were approximately double those of depressed patients without treatment resistance and quadruple those of patients without MDD. The burden also increased according to the level of resistance, which was estimated by the number of therapies received. Higher rates of employment status change were also seen in patients with treatment resistance compared to those without, suggesting a possible decrease in working hours or employment termination. The authors conclude that treatment-resistant depression, even compared to major depressive disorder, poses a significant direct and indirect cost burden to U.S. employers. These findings underscore the unmet need for treatment options that may help address the enduring effects of treatment-resistant depression on patients' personal and professional lives. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Tardive dyskinesia, or TD, is an involuntary movement disorder generally associated with antipsychotic treatment. Because of the serious and potentially irreversible nature of TD, accurate diagnosis is crucial. However, diagnosing TD can be challenging and early symptoms can be easily missed. Although the risk of developing TD during treatment with second-generation antipsychotics is lower than that associated with first-generation antipsychotics, the risk still exists and may be greater than once believed. Clinicians prescribe antipsychotics for a variety of illnesses and may underestimate the possibility of a patient developing TD. In this academic highlight CME activity, supported by an educational grant from Neurocrine Continental, Drs. Rakesh Jain and Christoph Corell review the prevalence, phenomenology, risk factors, and impact of TD. They illustrate their discussion with case examples and provide valuable clinical information to guide early recognition and accurate diagnosis. The following key points are addressed. TD is a risk with both first and second generation antipsychotics. 
All patients receiving antipsychotic treatment should be screened for abnormal movements at baseline and regularly throughout treatment. High doses of or unnecessary treatment with antipsychotic agents should be avoided in patients with known risk factors for TD. Objective, quantitative rating scales should be used in conjunction with established diagnostic criteria to accurately identify TD as early as possible. To read this academic highlights and take the CME post-test, please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Evidence indicates that certain clinical characteristics are associated with better treatment outcomes in youth with major depressive disorder, or MDD. To identify factors that put youth at risk for relapse, the authors of this study, with funding support from the National Institute of Mental Health, evaluated children and adolescents with MDD who responded to three months of treatment with fluoxetine. The researchers found that children with dysthymia or chronic depressive symptoms and those with more residual symptoms at the end of three months of treatment were at greater risk for relapse. Specifically, higher levels of insomnia and irritability at the end of treatment increased the odds of relapse. In addition, girls treated with fluoxetine were at greater relapse risk than boys. Finally, the study found that youth with low levels of family leadership, as measured at baseline, were at greater risk for relapse. The authors note that their findings could help identify children who are at risk for relapse and who therefore may need additional treatment strategies to prevent the return of depressive symptoms. There have been numerous reports of psychotic worsening for patients with schizophrenia when they switch to or add aripiprazole to their treatment regimen. To explore this phenomenon further, the authors of this meta-analysis, with support from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, systematically searched Medline, Embase, and the Cochrane Central Register of Controlled Trials for double-blind, randomized controlled trials involving a switch to or addition of aripiprazole in schizophrenia spectrum. 22 studies, including 13 switching to aripiprazole and 9 adding aripiprazole studies involving almost 6,000 patients, met eligibility criteria and were included in the meta-analysis. The authors then extracted the number of patients who experienced psychotic worsening, agitation, or anxiety, and those who discontinued the study due to all causes, lack of efficacy, or adverse events. Psychotic worsening was reported as an adverse event in all studies. No significant difference in the risk of psychotic worsening was found between switching to aripiprazole and switching to other antipsychotics. However, switching to aripiprazole was related to a significantly greater risk of study discontinuation due to lack of efficacy. Lack of data resulted in no conclusive results as to clinical risks of adding aripiprazole. The authors conclude that there is no direct evidence that a switch to aripiprazole is related to risk of psychotic worsening in participants in clinical trials, although a switch to aripiprazole may be associated with a higher risk of study discontinuation due to lack of efficacy. 
clinical heterogeneity is a key challenge to understanding suicidal risk as different pathways to suicidal behavior are likely to exist. In this study, sponsored by the National Institutes of Health, the authors examined how clinical and cognitive factors are associated with suicidal behavior. Their study group consisted of 251 older patients without dementia, 194 of whom were depressed. Distinct clusters based on personality traits, perceived social support, cognitive performance, and decision-making ability were identified in an analysis blinded to the participant's history of suicidal behavior. These clusters were then validated using past and prospective suicidal ideation and behavior. Of the five clusters identified, three were associated with high risk for suicidal behavior. The first was characterized by cognitive deficits, dysfunctional personality, low social support, high willingness to delay future rewards, and an overrepresentation of high lethality attempters. The second cluster was characterized by high personality pathology and minimal or no cognitive deficits and an overrepresentation of low lethality attempters or ideators. And the third was characterized by cognitive deficits and inability to delay future rewards. This cluster had a balanced distribution of high and low lethality attempters. There were significant between-cluster differences in number and lethality of past attempts, as well as in the likelihood of both future attempts and emergency psychiatric hospitalizations to prevent suicide. Clusters marked by cognitive and decision-making deficits had the highest proportions of subjects with at least one suicide attempted follow-up, 31% and 20%, respectively, with one fatal in each. This result contrasted with only 3% of participants in the lowest-risk cluster. In view of these results, the authors conclude that the characteristics of these three subgroups of depression patients indicate the highest risk for subsequent suicidal behavior. Cannabis is the most commonly used federally illicit drug in the United States. Cannabis and tobacco are often used together by the same people and also at the same time. For example, the use of blunts. People who smoke cigarettes are much more likely to use cannabis than people who do not smoke cigarettes. However, little is known about how cannabis use impacts smoking behavior over time. Specifically, changes in smoking behavior such as initiating smoking by people who do not smoke, relapse to smoking by people who were former smokers, and smoking cessation by people who currently smoke. With funding from the National Institutes of Health, the authors of this study examined how cannabis use impacted changes in cigarette smoking over a three-year period in a large sample of U.S. adults. The results suggest that non-smokers who used cannabis were more likely to start smoking cigarettes than non-smokers who did not use cannabis. The study also found that former cigarette smokers who used cannabis were more likely to relapse to smoking than former smokers who did not use cannabis. Additionally, current smokers who used cannabis were less likely to quit cigarette smoking than current smokers who did not use cannabis. Cannabis use has increased over time, especially as laws regulating the drug have changed in the United States. 
These findings suggest that the use of cannabis may impact smoking behaviors and that it may be beneficial to address cannabis use in order to help improve smoking cessation outcomes and reduce smoking relapse. In depressed patients treated with antidepressant medications, higher baseline levels of inflammation are associated with worse treatment outcomes. However, it is unknown whether inflammation levels are related to outcomes of electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT. With funding support from the National Institutes of Health, researchers from UCLA conducted a study to evaluate whether baseline levels of inflammatory markers might predict treatment outcome in response to ECT. In 29 depressed subjects scheduled for ECT, the authors measured inflammatory markers before ECT, after the second ECT session, and at the end of the treatment course. They found that higher baseline levels of the pro-inflammatory cytokine interleukin-6 were associated with a more favorable response to ECT. Importantly, this finding was independent of age, baseline severity of depressive symptoms, and duration of current depressive episodes. Additionally, the link between interleukin-6 and treatment outcome was stronger in women than in men. Another inflammation marker, C-reactive protein, was a predictor of lower depression scores at the end of treatment in women, but not in men. The authors conclude that if their results are replicated, evaluating patients' interleukin-6 levels may be useful in identifying patients who might be prioritized for advancement to ECT. They also note that understanding the impact of inflammation in men versus women and in response to various treatment strategies could help in developing personalized and effective treatment strategies for depression. For those who treat patients with mood disorders, perhaps the most dramatic recent change in how these patients are diagnosed is the addition in DSM-5 of the mixed feature specifier for major depressive episodes. In this ASCP corner, Michael Ostacher and Tricia Supis describe the development of the mixed feature specifier, the criteria for the diagnosis, and the dilemma clinicians face given the current state of evidence when treating patients who meet the criteria. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. The association of antidepressant use with increased suicidal thoughts and behavior has created a need for monitoring potential symptoms that arise after beginning a course of antidepressant medication. This concern about activating symptoms has led to the development of the Concise Associated Symptoms Tracking Scale, or CAST-SR, for use in individuals with primary stimulant use disorder. This self-report scale was originally designed to track mania, irritability, anxiety, panic, and insomnia among depressed outpatients receiving antidepressant medication. With funding from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, the authors of this study used data from the multi-site stimulant reduction intervention using dosed exercise or STRIDE trial to examine the psychometrics of the CAST-SR in a subsample of 124 people who reported being prescribed antidepressant medication. Participants had primary stimulant use disorders and were receiving either health education or a cardiovascular exercise intervention to treat their stimulant use. 
The study showed that four of the five original factors of the CAST-SR successfully loaded in this sample, with the mania factor failing to load and being dropped. The measure was also deemed to be statistically reliable. The authors conclude that the CAST-SR is a reliable measure for assessing irritability, anxiety, panic, and insomnia in people with primary stimulant use disorder who are also prescribed antidepressant medication. Bipolar disorder is a serious mental illness associated with premature mortality and potentially severe disability may affect as much as 6% of the adult population when the full bipolar spectrum is considered. Bipolar disorder was previously considered to occur only rarely, if ever, in children and adolescents. Yet over the past 20 years, a body of scientific literature has grown supporting the validity of bipolar diagnoses in the pediatric age group, and diagnostic rates have increased dramatically. These developments have created controversy and generated concerns that pediatric patients are now being overdiagnosed with bipolar disorder. In this academic highlight CME activity, supported by an educational grant from Synovian, doctors Robert L. Finling and Kiki D. Chang discuss current evidence on accurately diagnosing and safely and effectively treating bipolar disorder in pediatric patients. Doctors Finling and Chang define pediatric as ages 10 to 17 years. They address the following key points. The importance of conducting a differential diagnosis in pediatric patients for bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, or other psychotic disorders by incorporating appropriate tools and how to plan treatment for pediatric patients with bipolar disorder that integrates appropriate monitoring for efficacy and adverse effects. To read this academic highlights and take the CME post-test, please visit the March-April Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In the U.S., young adults aged 18 to 25 are more likely than any other age group to misuse prescription pain relievers, stimulants, and anti-anxiety medications. An important question is, how can we identify young adults who are at the greatest risk for developing serious substance-related problems? In a study funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, McCabe and colleagues used data from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, which included over 100,000 U.S. young adults, to examine prescription drug misuse behaviors in those who attend college versus those who do not. They also looked at how the misusers obtained the drugs. They found that young adults who did not attend college were more likely to misuse prescription pain relievers and anti-anxiety medications. In contrast, college students and college graduates were more likely to misuse stimulant medications. About one in eight college graduates misuse stimulant medications in their lifetime. Obtaining prescription medications by purchasing them was the most prevalent among young adults who did not attend college, while obtaining them for free from friends and relatives was most prevalent among college students and college graduates. Purchasing the drugs, stealing them, and having more than one source were associated with the most serious substance-related problems. In fact, more than 7 in 10 young adult misusers with more than one source for obtaining prescription drugs had serious substance-related problems. 
To identify young adults at the greatest risk for serious substance-related problems, the authors recommend that prescribers take a thorough medical history that includes asking about prior misuse of prescription medication and the source where the patient obtained the drugs. Sex differences in the prevalence of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, are well described in the literature. However, a debate remains as to whether the variations are due to differences between males and females in the type and prevalence of exposure to traumatic events, differences in vulnerability to the events, even when rates of exposure are similar, or both. In a U.S. government-funded study, researchers used moderated mediation models in a large, nationally representative sample to examine whether sex differences in the prevalence or effect of 19 types of traumatic events contributed to sex differences in the prevalence of PTSD. They modeled the frequent co-occurrence of multiple traumatic events instead of including only the worst event experienced by participants as was generally done in prior studies. Their findings suggest that the higher prevalence of PTSD among women is due to differential vulnerability to most traumatic events and not to differential exposure to traumatic events. This understanding may help to guide preventive interventions. The authors hope that their model can serve as a basis for future work that will incorporate additional moderating variables or different levels of analysis, such as genetics or neuroimaging. These efforts may help us better understand the biological and psychological causes of increased vulnerability to the effects of traumatic events in women. Antipsychotics have long been used in the treatment of depression. Since 2007, the FDA has approved several antipsychotics for adjunctive use in treatment-resistant depression. Because antipsychotics have significant adverse effects, however, concerns have been raised over potential overuse and guideline inconsistent use of these drugs to treat depression. In this national study, supported by the National Institute of Mental Health, researchers used Medicaid claims data from 2001 to 2010 to examine patterns of antipsychotic use in the community treatment of adults with new episodes of non-psychotic depression. They found that approximately one in seven patients initiated an antipsychotic in the year following the onset of a new depressive episode. However, slightly more than 40% of these patients were diagnosed with conditions that indicated using antipsychotics, such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, leaving approximately 1 in 12 patients most likely initiating an antipsychotic to treat depression. Antipsychotic dosing in these patients was predominantly within the range recommended for treating depression. Taken together, these findings on use rate and dose are reassuring. Disconcertingly, however, more than two-thirds of patients initiating an antipsychotic for depression either did not use antidepressants long enough for researchers to conclude that response was insufficient, or they used antipsychotics as monotherapy rather than as adjunctive treatment to an antidepressant. These findings suggest potentially premature and inappropriate initiation of a drug class with substantial adverse effects and medical risks. The authors recommend that to reduce unnecessary use of antipsychotics for non-psychotic depression, it is important that patients first receive a full trial of antidepressant medication treatment.
Stimulants are very effective for symptoms of ADHD, but their abuse potential remains a significant barrier to treatment. The therapeutic mechanism of action of stimulants on these symptoms is thought to be through modulation of dopamine and norepinephrine. A recent discovery in animals revealed that some of the abuse potential of stimulants is associated with new opioid receptor activation. This finding may allow us to disentangle the cognitive and behavioral benefits of stimulants from their unwanted addictive potential. In animals, administering an opioid receptor antagonist such as naltrexone blocks the rewarding effects of a high dose of a stimulant. However, it is unknown whether opioid antagonists block the abuse potential of stimulants in humans. To explore this question, Spencer and colleagues, with funding from the U.S. Department of Defense, began by replicating prior studies showing that single, higher doses of immediate-release methylphenidate are associated with measures of subjective liking, which are thought to be measures of abuse potential. Further, they show that adding naltrexone to daily methylphenidate treatment decreased its abuse potential during the titration phase, which is a time of heightened risk for experiencing euphoric effects of the stimulant. Abuse potential during the maintenance treatment phase, however, was not decreased. In view of these findings, the authors speculate that successful treatment of ADHD with the combination of naltrexone and a stimulant could lead to the development of a non-addictive form of stimulant treatment for ADHD. Complicated grief is a form of intense and impairing grief following the death of a loved one that lasts longer than would be expected according to social norms. Because the suffering associated with complicated grief is so profound and suicide loss survivors are susceptible to developing complicated grief, identifying effective treatment for suicide loss survivors is a high priority. This foresight, double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized trial sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health and the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention compared the effectiveness of antidepressant medication alone or in combination with complicated grief therapy, or CGT, for participants with complicated grief bereaved by suicide, accident, or homicide, or natural causes. Dropout rates were high among participants receiving medication alone, too high, in fact, to be able to assess effectiveness in those participants. Dropout rates were much lower among participants receiving CGT. CGT also appeared to be quite effective among survivors of suicide loss. Especially noteworthy were the impressively low rates of post-treatment active suicide ideation among suicide survivors. Similarly, for most outcomes, including symptom severity, suicidal ideation, functional impairment, avoidance, and maladaptive beliefs, CGT was as effective for the suicide-bereaved participants as it was for the others. The authors conclude that these results may raise concerns about the acceptability of medication alone as a treatment for complicated grief in treatment-seeking suicide-bereaved adults. However, they also provide preliminary data suggesting that CGT is feasible to administer, well-tolerated, and effective for those with complicated grief following a loved one's suicide.
Because the onset of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, is often well-defined since it follows a discrete exposure to trauma, it is possible that a window of opportunity exists shortly after the exposure to favorably change the trajectory of the disorder. The authors of the present study with funding from Lundbeck tested this hypothesis with early and short-term administration of the Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor, or SSRI, s citalopram Individuals who had experienced a traumatic event were randomly assigned to receive either s at 10 to 20 milligrams per day or placebo. Treatment began within one month after the exposure and before the diagnosis of PTSD could be established, continuing for three to six months. Although escitalopram did not prevent PTSD, it was well tolerated and favorably affected sleep pattern in PTSD patients six to nine months after the discontinuation of the treatment. Moreover, for a subgroup of PTSD patients who were exposed to intentional trauma, escitalopram treatment decreased the severity of PTSD symptoms at the 13-month time point. Some of the interventions currently used in treatment are either not helping or might actually interfere with the potent spontaneous recovery process. For example, debriefing, benzodiazepines, and group therapy. This study suggests that a short course of an SSRI started soon after a traumatic event should be considered as secondary prevention of PTSD for those exposed to intentional trauma. Autism or certain associated behaviors, including self-injurious behaviors and atypical pain reactivity, may result from excessive opioid activity. However, results regarding relationships between self-injurious behaviors, beta-endorphin, and pain reactivity in autism are discrepant due to methodological problems such as sample sizes, behavioral assessments, and biochemical measures. To clarify this issue, the authors of this study, funded by the French National Institute on Health and Medical Research, measured plasma beta-endorphin levels in 74 children and adolescents with autism and intellectual disability. For the first time in an autism study, two different beta-endorphin immunoassays were used to examine potential biochemical method effects. Behavioral pain reactivity and self-interest behaviors were carefully and completely assessed in three different observational situations using validated quantitative and qualitative scales by parents at home, by two caregivers at a daycare center, and by a nurse and child psychiatrist during blood drawing. A high proportion of individuals with autism displayed self-interest behaviors Parents and caregivers noted 50% and 70.3% respectively. The most frequent types of self-injurious behaviors were headbanging and handbiting. Absent or decreased overall pain reactivity was observed. Parents and caregivers noted 68.6% and 34.2% respectively. Those individuals with hyporeactivity to accidental pain stimuli in daily life displayed significantly higher rates of self-biting. No significant correlations were observed between beta-endorphin level and self-injurious behaviors or pain reactivity assessed in any of the three observational situations. The authors conclude that taken together with the conflicting results of prior opioid studies in autism, 
the absence of any observed relationships between beta-endorphin levels and self-interest behaviors or pain reactivity does not support the opioid theory of autism and the use of opiate antagonist therapies in autism spectrum disorder. Understanding suicide risk is a priority for the U.S. military. In the Army study to assess risk and resilience in service members, which was funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, researchers aimed to estimate associations of childhood maltreatment with lifetime suicidal behaviors in new soldiers entering the U.S. military. Information was collected from over 38,000 soldiers reporting for basic training from April 2011 through November 2012. After being surveyed about childhood abuse and neglect, soldiers were grouped into one of five categories. No maltreatment, episodic emotional maltreatment, frequent emotional and physical maltreatment, episodic emotional and sexual abuse, and frequent emotional, physical, and sexual maltreatment. Nearly one in five new soldiers was classified as having experienced childhood maltreatment. Compared to those with no maltreatment, soldiers with childhood maltreatment were much more likely to report having thought about suicide, having made a plan, or attempted suicide at some point in their lives. Having had mental disorders such as major depression or post-traumatic stress disorder did not meaningfully change the findings. The authors conclude that childhood maltreatment is strongly associated with suicidal behavior among new soldiers, even after taking into account intervening mental disorders. They recommend that focusing on childhood maltreatment might reveal avenues for risk reduction among new soldiers. In the most recent installments of his clinical and practical psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade reviews two important topics related to the treatment of depression. One of the most important potential applications for ketamine in sub-anesthetic doses is as a crisis intervention treatment to reduce suicidal ideation. In his first column, Dr. Andrade summarizes the existing evidence and points to areas that still need research. Nine years ago, a network meta-analysis ranked the efficacy and acceptability of 12 newer antidepressants in adults with major depressive disorder. This analysis was recently updated to reflect new drugs. In his second column, Dr. Andrade summarizes the results and provides a simple explanation of this type of analysis. The full text of these columns is freely available online, please visit the March-April Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the March-April issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the Table of Contents on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast your place for psychiatry sound bites.